0: Good to see y'all. Thanks for braving the rain. After all, we're Texans, so you should be used to it. Crazy rain out of nowhere, which is lots of fun, but we need the rain. Welcome to the Parkway Church. Uh, Thanks for being here. If you uh, haven't already, open up your Bible to that passage, Matthew 7, that's chapter 7, verse 7. Uh, We're going to be in verses 7 through 12 this morning. And if you're new here, you're joining us in the midst of our journey through the entire book of Matthew. Okay, slowly but surely, we'll get there. We'll make it through, but we're in chapter 7 today. We're on the back half of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is a collection, basically, of short, bite-sized summaries of Jesus' teachings, where he's been laying out for us in detail what it looks like to live as a disciple of his kingdom, of the kingdom of God. And we've seen that the standard Jesus places before us for righteousness, for how to live as Christians, how, how Christians ought to treat one another how they ought to treat others how a Christian ought to treat those who persecute them even how Christians ought to pray we've seen it the way Jesus describes how Christians how his disciples ought to live and act and react in various situations if you're honest with yourself is the exact opposite of how we tend to live and act and react in our daily living if your enemy insults you we don't think oh i can't wait to love my enemy, and pray for him. We think, destroy him, crush him. I'm going to end this guy, <laughs> right? That's that's what we want. That, Jesus says, instead, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Or Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't worry about your future, how you'll sustain your life. God's going to care for you. And we're like, yeah, I'm going to worry about it, mm-hmm. because I'm not sure if he's going to care for me in the way that Well, I would like to be cared for. So yeah, I'm going to worry. I'm going to be anxious. And we've read through this entire Sermon on the Mount. One thing each week has become abundantly clear that the things Jesus commands us to do are things we fail to do on a daily basis. If this is what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God, if that's the standard, I mean, Jesus said it as clearly as he could. The standard is be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Right? If that's the standard... Then you and I don't have a chance. We don't have what it takes when it comes to righteousness, to love, to humility, to generosity, to wisdom. Even being able to judge our own sin well, like we saw last week. We don't have what it takes. We're severely lacking. And that could be potentially really discouraging. That could be a terribly discouraging thing to come to terms with, but it is a necessary and beneficial reality to come to terms with because here's what we're going to see in our text today. Recognizing that you are desperately lacking is not something to try to run away from. It's not something to try to cover up. It's not something to try to push aside. Rather, seeing how much you lack is an opportunity to run toward the one who can give you everything that you lack. Jesus today is going to encourage us in our lack, hey, don't run away, but rather turn toward your father to provide what you lack, to do what any child who lacks something would do if his father was a perfectly loving and perfectly good father, to run toward our good and loving father and ask him for what we need. He's going to encourage us to ask our heavenly father for what we lack. That's one of three things that he's going to ask us and encourage us to do this morning. So this is sort of the point of our entire text this morning. In our lack, Jesus encourages us to ask your Father for what you lack, to trust your Father to care for you, and then to care for others in the same way. Ask your Father for what you lack. Trust him to care for you and care for others. In the same way. So that will be our focus this morning. I believe this passage has the potential to deeply reorient how we think about ourselves, how we think about our Father in heaven, and how we think about those around us. So let's pray now that God would change our hearts, would, would reorient our hearts to be more like his. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you, to open your word, and to hear you speak. I pray, God, that we would indeed hear you, Uh, you would give us ears to hear, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, as you promise you will. We thank you for your abundant mercy, your grace upon which all that we have is founded. We thank you that you're a good and loving Father. I pray that we would worship you uh, in spirit and in truth. You would be glorified this morning. You would be with us, change us, transform us, conform us to Christ's image. It's in Christ's name that we we pray. Amen. Let's begin with Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 8, which reads, "'Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened.' Now, if you're like me, as soon as you hear this passage, there's this little red flag comes up in your mind. It's like, whoa, 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 be careful, Joel Osteen. No, thank you. You're starting to sound a little prosperity gospel-ish. You know, asking, it'll be given to you. The one who asks receives, no matter the request. But we know from experience that's not true, right? Like, if you ask God for a million dollars, which I think is like that'll buy you a three-bedroom house here in McKinney. If you ask him for a million dollars, just, God, give me a million dollars, you're probably not going to get a million dollars in an envelope in your mailbox. And if you do, do not touch it. Don't mess with that. You want nothing to do with it. Just move, okay? That's probably not going to happen. God's not a magic genie granting whatever requests you bring. Trust me, Texas A&M would have won several national championships, given the Aggie Christians who fervently pray for a national championship. Aggie Christian, two words that mean the same thing. So... God's not a magic genie who grants whatever request you put before him. But Jesus also isn't saying that if you don't ask God for something, he won't give it to you. If you don't ask, he's going to withhold it from you. Okay, That's what some people try to do with this text. But again, we know from experience that's not true. God blesses us in ways we could never ask for, right? Did you ask for, his, for him to send his son to die on your behalf? No. Do the birds ask for God to feed them? Do the lilies of the field ask for God to clothe them? No, but how much more valuable are we than birds and flowers? That was Jesus' argument from a few weeks ago. So Jesus isn't saying that you'll get whatever you ask for, and he's not saying that God will withhold what you don't ask for. Instead, Jesus is using this three-part metaphor of asking, seeking, and knocking to illustrate something incredibly simple and yet profound all at once, He's making one point here. And he repeats a simple metaphor in three different ways to really make sure our little brains get it, to drill down this point, And this is his point. The person who asks, seeks, and knocks lacks something. They don't have something. He doesn't have something. That's why he has to ask for it. He doesn't have something. That's why he has to go looking for it. He lacks access. That's why. He has to knock to be let in. In other words, Jesus is saying, if there's someone who has what you lack, why wouldn't you ask them for it? If there's something worth finding, why wouldn't you go seeking after it? And if there's a door you'd like to enter, why wouldn't you knock so that it might be open to you? And so imagine your house was on fire, extreme analogy, okay? Your house is on fire, and God forbid, you left your phone inside. Okay? And so you, you run over to your neighbor's house. That's what you'd probably do to call 911. But when you got to their front door, imagine you got to their door and you just stood there. Not making a sound, not knocking. You just, you just stood there, doing nothing. Your house is burning. You need to make the call. You know your neighbor's in there. You can hear them enjoying a beautiful day, laughing, but you don't make a sound and you don't knock. You stand there in silence. Will that door be open to you? No. In that moment, is there something that you lack? Yes, a phone. And in that moment, are you standing at the threshold of the door of the one who has everything you lack? Yes, you are. So knock, ask, seek. Knock, and it'll be open to you. The one who can provide what you lack will answer. That's Jesus' point. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, it'll become abundantly clear that there is something you lack. And now, what is that exactly? I've already mentioned some things, but I think they all fit into two categories. What we lack is righteousness and hope. We lack righteousness and we lack hope. Righteousness, meaning right standing before God, the perfection required for you to have relationship, communion with God. And we lack hope. We lack any meaningful sovereignty over our life, our future, our future outcomes. You're not in charge of how many hairs are on your head. I'm certainly not. You can't add a year to your life through your worry. You lack control. And knowing this leaves you hopeless. You may have momentary hope, but nothing that's everlasting. And if you know yourself well, you'll know that there are different ways to deal with the fact that you lack righteousness and hope. And I really want to talk about this for a moment. First, when it comes to righteousness, we have a few different strategies that we employ when we lack righteousness. Sometimes when we see that we don't measure up to that righteous standard, well, we begin to focus on everyone else around us, how they don't measure up. Like we saw last week, we judge others. We talk about the specks in their eyes and we downplay and ignore, claim we can't see our own unrighteousness, which ironically is an incredibly unrighteous thing to do. Or sometimes, since we see that our best attempts, they still fall short of the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God requires, we find a new standard to meet, one that's easier for us to to think that we're actually achieving, like the approval of our peers. Rather than ask God for what we lack, we ask the opinions of our social circle, our Twitter followers or whatever to provide a substitute because gaining a following is much easier than being perfect as your Father in heaven is. You just have to do enough righteousness to get people to notice you and conceal enough of your unrighteousness so that no one asks you any questions. But again, that doesn't solve the problem of your human condition. You're still not right with God. That's not all. This sort of strategy and appearance of righteousness without the reality of the righteousness, it enslaves you to the opinions of others, radically self-centered but completely dependent upon everyone else's approval, on others' approval. So it leaves you anxious, angry, fearful, constantly testing the waters, seeing if you're still good or, or no, they don't like me anymore. And it requires you to hide the truth to keep up the lie that you're a good person. And you're not. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is meant to reveal. You're not a good person. You're not righteous. You don't have what it takes. So these strategies, they just leave us in the same place that we started, lacking righteousness. At best, we're whitewashed tombs, squeaky clean on the outside, concealing our rottenness on the inside. And again, having at best a convincing appearance of righteousness, but lacking the reality of righteousness and then what about hope what do we do when we when we when we lack hope what strategies do we employ basically in a word we manufacture hope for ourselves we manufacture our own hope we create these visions in our minds about how satisfactions just around the corner so we can feel like we're heading somewhere and that we're the ones in control of our destiny and that gives us hope we're all we're all teenagers living in our house. Once I move out of my parents' house, that'll be the day. That, that's all we thought, you know. Once, I'll be, once I'm on my own, I'll be my own king. I'll be in charge of my life, and my world will finally, finally be all that it could be. And then we're like, well, I guess I need some schooling to get a better job. I guess I need a college degree. Once I get my college degree, that'll be the day. Well, once I get a good job, or actually once I get a job that I like, and once I get married, and once we can have kids, and once I buy that thing, and once I get the new car, because my old car's terrible, and once I get some respect around here and people start looking at me like me for what I'm worth, and once I'm my own boss, and once my kids get out of the house without getting anyone pregnant, that'd be great. Once I can have enough money to do the things that I've always put off because I've not cared enough about myself, once I get a break, once I retire, once I take that vacation I always put off, well, that'll be the day. It's just right there, almost within my grasp, but those days come and go and come and go and come and go, and we have no more hope in our circumstances than we have when we started. It's good to set goals. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Set your 5-year, your 10-year, your 15-year goals, but don't think that the steps you've laid out will give you any sort of control or any sort of hope that won't end up spoiling after a week. And worst of all, when you spend all your energy trying to manufacture hope for yourself, it transforms you, and not for the better. Over time, you become ruled by fear, things not going your way, things not going according to your plan, fear of losing control, fear of losing the hope that you've made for yourself. And you even get angry when other people get in the way of your meticulously manufactured plans because they're stepping on your hope, what you're working for in your life. Like most of the time when you yell at your kids, it's not because anything... They're in danger. It's okay to yell at your kids if they're in danger about to run in front of a car. That's not why you yell at your kids, though. Why do you yell at your kids? Because they're stepping on your hope. This Saturday was supposed to be a nice Saturday. This was supposed to be a good day, and you kids stepping on your hope. We lack hope, so we try to create it ourselves. And anyone who gets in our way—our spouse, our kids your friends, your coworkers, that Honda Civic driving in front of you, anyone who gets in the way of our plans becomes a target. You know, you're getting in the way of my path of joy. Do things my way or get out of my way. But even if things do go according to our plan, that hope doesn't last. It's not everlasting. We can spin our wheels, invest our, every second of our lives into manufacturing our own hope. And the moment you feel like everything's going great, all it takes is a bad scan at the doctor's office, to unwind everything you've white-knuckled to go according to your plan. So we lack righteousness, and we lack hope. And when we lack righteousness and when we lack hope, those are some of the places we tend to run away from the Father to our own strategies. Isn't there something better is there anything, is there any way that is one of rest? Have you ever heard of a, maybe a yoke that is easy or a burden that is light? Rather than taking our righteousness and, and, and faking it and rather than manufacturing our own hope, what Jesus gives us this morning, he says, ask your Father for what you lack. Ask your Father for what you lack. It says in verse 7, Ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. When you recognize that there's something that you lack, when you recognize you have no, no means by which to obtain righteousness or an everlasting hope, Jared will love this. Jesus says, lift up your eyes. Put your eyes up. Ask the God of righteousness. Ask the God of hope. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. There is no promise more more encouraging and yet so disregarded in our lives. Why would we go to any other source? No other source promises to provide what you lack like the Father does. So when you recognize that you lack righteousness, rather than try to conceal your unrighteousness, Rather than trying to cover it up with how bad everyone else is, run to the Father and ask for what you lack. Don't cover up your sin, your your unrighteousness. Don't make up excuses. Try to blame people around you. Acknowledge your sin and let God cover it. Do like David does in Psalm 32. David sings, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledge my sin to you, says to God. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. I'll say, here you go. Do something with this. And what did God do? Forgave the iniquity of my sin. When you lack righteousness, ask your father for what you lack. Go to your father with your unrighteousness, and he gives you the righteousness you lack. And likewise, when you lack hope, rather than trying to manufacture hope for yourself, ask your Father for what you lack, and he will give you a hope that is everlasting. Are you worried about your future? Do you feel like your life is on a path that's only going to lead to pain and misery? You feel like there's no one to care for you, that you're on your own without hope? And that time, go to the Father. He is good. He is sovereign. He's in control, unlike you. He's in charge of everything, and he's the only one who can give you the joy, the rest, and the everlasting hope that you're longing for. So why would you go to any other source? Ask your Father for what you lack. Verse 8, for everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And now look at verses 9 through 11. Jesus says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Jesus now transitions to drive a different point home. Because not only does he encourage us to ask our Father for what we lack, now he gives us confidence to trust that our heavenly Father will hear us and provide what we lack. He encourages us to trust, trust your Father to care for you. Trust your Father to care for you. And he does so with this illustration, where he pictures one of the disciples' sons, that's who he's speaking with, going to their dad and asking for bread or a fish. And bread and fish are like the staples of a Galilean diet. Okay? especially among the poor. When, when Jesus feeds the crowd of 5,000, they didn't bring any food with them. What does he feed the crowd with? Loaves of bread and fish that some kid happened to have with him. And so Jesus knows that his disciples, those who are fathers, have certainly been asked by their sons for some food. Most likely, they've been asked for bread or fish. I say, Dad, I'm, I'm hungry. Can I have some bread, can I have some fish? As they're walking through town, as they're walking home from the synagogue, as they're working, as they're plowing a field, Dad, I'm, I'm so hungry. Did you, did you bring that bread? Do you have that fish? And those of you with kids in this room, I'm, sur- I'm sure that your kids have told you before, I'm really hungry, like I'm about to die. I'm hungry, right? Who of you, if your kid asks for bread, would give them a stone, something that looks like a round loaf of bread? but it's completely inedible. Unhelpful. Or if your kid asks for fish, you know your kid's a pescatarian, a little more adventurous in their eating, how many of you would give them a serpent? Again, a, a venomous snake, something inedible, something that it does nothing to satisfy their hunger and even worse, it could harm them. None of you. None of you would do that. Because you love your kids, right? No matter what mood you're in or what mood they're in, and how much of your hope they've stepped on that day, no matter what, you're not going to let them go hungry. None None of you could do that because you love your kids. You love them. And the disciples probably answered the same way. So then Jesus says, here's what's crazy. All of you are evil. And you wouldn't treat your kid that way. You would provide what your kid lacked, even though you're evil. Look at verse 11. If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now notice here that Jesus believes, and he's right, that you and me and his disciples, were all evil. Nothing personal. It's just how you are. We're all evil. Again, that's the Sermon on the Mount convinces us and Jesus' original audience of that we are evil. We lack righteousness. We're hopelessly evil. And our evil affects every aspect of our lives, the way we work, the way we eat, the way we think about ourselves. And unfortunately, for everyone who interacts with us, it affects the way we treat other people. And any relationship exists in that relationship long enough, and you'll find your evil self-centeredness hurting what was otherwise a perfectly lovely relationship. And they're going to hurt you the same way. We are evil. Like Paul tells the Romans, there's none who is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one of us. But in spite of our evil self-centeredness, if your son asked you for food, (laughs) you're going to give that to him. Who's not going to do that? Because you love him. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater, okay? If you know that you, though evil, would provide what your child lacked, if they ask, because you love your kids, how much more so should you trust that God, if he's your heavenly father, you're his beloved child, that he will provide what you lack? How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Your father in heaven is a good and loving father. There is no evil in God. He is only and always good. Therefore, go to him. Ask him for what you lack and trust that he will care for you. Now, what does that look like practically? You know, it's real nice what I'm saying. I've said it a lot. Just go ask God for what you lack, and just go trust him. Trust that he'll care for you. That sounds great. But what does that look like, actually, practically, in your everyday life? Well, first, the asking looks like prayer, Okay, That's not obvious. It looks like prayer. Jesus is encouraging us to pray. And prayer in and of itself is an act of trusting God to care for you, asking him to provide the righteousness and hope that you lack. It means that at least in that moment, you're going to him. You're trusting him to provide those things rather than trying to produce your own counterfeit substitutes for yourself. You're trusting him in prayer. And so I want to spend some time talking about the practical practice of prayer. This isn't going to be an exhaustive dissertation on prayer, but I do want to spend a significant amount of time encouraging you this morning to pray and hopefully maybe remove one of the significant barriers to prayer that we put in our own way. So this uh, Tim Keller, uh, who's a guy who writes books and preaches things, he wrote a book, a really helpful book on prayer a few years ago. I think it was just called Prayer. I mentioned this actually the other night at our our, uh, night of worship and prayer Tim Keller wrote this book where he calls prayer a conversation and an encounter with God. And he says that the conversation begins with God's word. Okay, like any conversation, someone has to say the first word to speak first, and God has spoken first. God speaks to us through his word, the words that are there in your Bible. And as we read God's word, as you hear God's word, we respond with our own words through our uh, prayer is our response to God's word. That's the conversation, the back and forth. But Keller also calls prayer an encounter with God. When you hear God's word and you respond by talking to God out loud or in your head or journaling or whatever, you begin to counter, to encounter, to commune with your God. He becomes less and less like a far off God in the sky and more and more like a loving father across from you at your kitchen table. And that's the simplest definition I can give for prayer, and I cannot encourage us enough to pursue the simple practice of prayer in our lives, because it's, it's great for us to be a church filled with a knowledge of the Scriptures, but knowledge of God is far, hear me, far inferior to communion with God as your Father. Speaking to Him, conversing with Him, asking Him for what you lack, trusting Him as if He is your good and loving Father because He is A knowledge of God's word is nothing if it doesn't fuel communion with God. And so I want to try to tackle a common thought, a common obstacle that we set up that keeps us from that communion, keeps us from joining that conversation that God is inviting us to have with him, very explicitly inviting us to have with him in this text this morning. So a common way of thinking that keeps us from communion with our Father, we think that we're not doing it right or that we're not worthy, that we're unworthy. We think we're not doing it right, or that we're unworthy. Prayer is something we often, that we don't do because we think we're not doing it right. God's just hearing our prayer, or we imagine if we actually, if we're honest, like you're like, oh yeah, I don't even pray, and if I did, we imagine that God would just cross his arms and be like, this guy, this is awful. What a disgrace. Is that the best you've got? Well, 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 look who's finally come to the table. That's what we picture. We feel like there's this problem with how we're doing it. There's a problem with us. We're unworthy. Like we're not not dressed. We're underdressed. We're not dressed for the occasion or something. We imagine we have to be in some sort of spiritual state of mind in order to pray, like a monk at our kitchen table with silence around us, just ready to approach the throne or whatever. But how do kids approach their parents, if you think about it? Literally, before the service, we were praying for the service. And my kids just start barging in my office, right? That's how kids approach conversations. The other day, Kelsey and I are having a, you know, a serious conversation. Our kids are like, I don't like the socks I'm wearing. And you're just like, <laughs> OK, that's great. You know, I'm hungry. You know, they just barge in. They just, they just talk. There's no quieting of the soul required. There's no spiritual state of mind required for you to ask your father for something. You can barge right in. And so I want to practice this. Let's practice barging in. In your mind, wherever you're sitting, I want us all to try this. Ask that God would make you a person who delights in prayer. Ask that God would give you that good gift, that communion with him. God, make me a person that loves to pray. Go ahead and say that in your mind. okay. that's prayer. That's a snippet of the conversation. You just join the conversation. God's already spoke to you this morning. Ask me, he said. Ask and it'll be given to you. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give good gifts to those who ask him? He says that, and you say, give me this good gift, God, that I would converse with you more like this, nothing fancy about it. And if you struggled when I gave you Oh, you didn't give me enough time, Tim. If you struggled with that amount of time, in that brief moment, or or, or after you asked, after you asked him, and I started talking again, you started, your mind was flooded with all this doubt and all these thoughts about how well I'm not being authentic. I'm just repeating something that you know someone else said, so it's not really my prayer. It doesn't, you know, I'm just going through the motions. It's not really. It's not real. It's not genuine. Well, that's not how it works, Tim. You know, I'm the one responsible for making me a better prayer. I can't just go, "Oh, God, make me a better prayer," and he's like a magic genie. Just like you said, Tim, you're the one who said that. You know, <clears throat> slow down, slow down. Those obstacles are not from God. That insecurity, that angst, is it from your father? What it, this is? That's why the importance of studying the Word is why it's so important. What is from your father is what you're reading this morning. Ask, ask. It'll be given to you. God gives good gifts to his children. Even if you are just going through the motions, even if you aren't being authentic, even if it, is, it feels like a shot in the dark, God, I want to pray more. You're like, oh no, I got to say more than that. It's not enough. You got to do, I saw the ACTS acronym. You got to adore first, then confess. No, none of that. Throw that away. You think communion with God is built on your authenticity? You think the communion with God is built on your striving, on your format, on your acronym, on your efforts? Asking, even if it's flippant, is better than not asking at all. And that's the error I'm trying to push against. We have so many things we think, so many obstacles where we say, hey, I'm not doing it right, I'm not worthy, that we don't do it at all, rather than maybe doing it poorly. God says, ask, and it'll be given to you. I want to encourage you, this is all I'm saying. I want to encourage you to recognize the space God has made available to you. Or you can share with him your thoughts, ask him for good gifts, ask him for what you lack. Practically speaking, when you become aware of your, your lack of righteousness, for example, when you're refusing to work through forgiving someone that you're angry with, or you find that you have no interest praying for your enemy, much less to love or forgive them, or when you commit the same sin that you're trying to get better about, when you're face to face with your lack of righteousness, you have Practically speaking, in that moment, space, to ask God, God, provide me what I lack. I'm not righteous enough to pray for this guy. Make me more like you, God. I want, to, I want to be like that. I'm not. I don't have that in me. Change my heart. Provide the righteousness, the love, the humility that I lack. Those moments of where we typically run to doubt and self-condemnation. Those are opportunities to lean, to, to ask your father who gives good gifts to his children. Or when you find that you're manufacturing hope for yourself, give yourself, to try to give yourself an illusion of control, God is giving you space in that moment of realization. And he provides that realization through his spirit, which is a grace. He's providing you that moment of realization so that you would ask that God would change your desire. God, provide what I lack. Set my eyes on a hope that is everlasting. Rather than this thing I'm chasing for, I'm getting so angry about that is ultimately unsatisfying and temporary. Ask and it'll be given to you. Just ask. God will provide what you lack. It's not based on how you're doing it, whether you're doing it right or not, whatever that means. It's based on, well, it's also not based on your worthiness or your sinfulness or anything like that. Just like a father's decision to give their kid bread isn't based on anything his kid brings. It's not based on the merit of your child, whether or not you feed them. You feed them because you love them. Likewise, God gives you what you lack, not based on how well you ask. Communion with God is never built on how good of a job you're doing. Rather, God's love, mercy, is the foundation. You are desperately lacking, so Ask him to provide the righteousness and hope that you lack and trust that he will. Because he says he will. Hopefully that's practical. Let's continue with verse 12. But I'll read verse 11 again just for the context. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So... Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That so there means therefore. And that's actually how it's translated throughout Matthew. And that tells you that what we call the golden rule, doing to others what you'd have them do to you, is actually connected to the argument that Jesus just made. If you evil people give good gifts, just imagine how much more your Father who is in heaven will give good things to those who ask him Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Isn't that strange? (laughs) Like, what's the connection? What's he driving at? Here's the point I think Jesus is making here. Like I said, Jesus is going to encourage us in our passage today to ask the Father for what we lack, to trust your Father to care for you. And now here we see Jesus tells us to care for others in the same way. Care for others in the same way. What do you wish the Father would do for you? When you go to the Father with your need, God, I'm unrighteous, I have no hope, what are you hoping? How are you hoping that he's going to treat you? You're hoping he'll be merciful. You're hoping he'll be gracious, he'll be compassionate, he'll be kind, loving, generous, he'll provide. You're hoping that in spite of your evil, in spite of your unrighteousness, to actually give you the righteousness that you lack. That's what you're hoping for. And then he does, mercifully. Though you're evil, he treats you like a son and a daughter, and he gives you what you ask for. Therefore, since you seem to wish that even though you're evil, you should be treated with loving generosity, you should be treated with mercy, with compassion, You should be given the benefit of the doubt since you wish that at least God would give you good things, though you have time and time and time and time and time again made yourself an enemy of God. If that's how you'd like to be treated, you should treat others in the same way. When you receive the good gifts of righteousness and hope from your Father, it ought to transform the way that you treat others who ask you for things. How you have been treated by God should transform the way that you treat others, which is why Jesus says, for this is the law and the prophets. What does he mean by that? What is he talking about, the law and the prophets? When Jesus says that phrase, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures, Moses' law and the writings of the prophets. And what does Jesus say the law and the prophets are all about? Look at Matthew twenty-two, thirty-six 36 through 40, which we'll probably get to in 2025. Uh, he says, Teacher. Uh, Jesus doesn't say this. A man comes up and asks him, a teacher of the law, asks him, teacher, which is the greatest, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great commandment, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God. And that love, that communion with God, reorients how you treat your neighbor. Communion with God overflows into love for others. If you don't have love for your neighbor, there's an obvious gap in your understanding of your communion with God. So think of the way you treat others as the the fruit of your life. right? And if the fruit you commonly produce toward others is impatience, anger, unkindness, division, criticism, that's not, that's not the fruit full fueled by communion with God. That's not the fruit of a life that understands that every good gift they have is a merciful gift from God, from the Father. That's the fruit of a life who's not asking the Father for anything. That's the fruit of a life for someone who's trusting their own strategies for dealing with their unrighteousness and pouring out all of their energy to manufacture their own hope. You show me a person who runs around telling everybody about the specks in their eyes, but can't see the plank in their own, and I'll show you a person that rarely prays. The way you treat others tells us a lot about the way you understand the grace you've been shown and the relationship God's mercy has established with you. Jesus fleshes this out for us in great detail uh, when Peter asks him about how many times he should forgive his brother in Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Peter came up and he said to Jesus, this is verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? How generous, Peter. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which is a ton of money. A ton of money, more than many of you will see in your lifetime, okay? And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring this king, have patience with me, I'll pay you everything. And out of pity, the master did more than simply say, okay, I won't sell you, you can pay me over time, no. Since he could not pay, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And that same servant, he went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, which is insignificant, a small amount. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and he pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused. He went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master, the king, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Shouldn't that forgiveness have affected the way that you exist with others? should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. He did the thing to that servant, what that servant had done to the man who had owed him so much less money, put him in jail and demanded he pay for it. So, therefore, as Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets." see the way that you have been treated by God when you ask him for things. And though you're evil, he lavishes you with good things like a child. Don't make people meet a standard that you've never met before you show them mercy or kindness or forgiveness or you're generous towards them. Luke drives this point home in his gospel, Luke 6, 27 through 31. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also from the one who takes away your cloak. (laughs) Give Give him your tunic as well. Give to everyone who begs from you, from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Out of the love you've received from the Father, love others in the same way. This is point. Everything you have has been undeservedly given to you, so extend that same mercy and love and generosity to others. That's how you would prefer to be treated, at least. And again, you may be feeling that, <laughs> that prick of conviction. You see, oh, that is not how I treat others. Here now, as we take communion, God is giving you the space to pray, to commune, why we call it communion the opportunity to ask the Father for what you lack. Go to him for the righteousness that you lack. Trust that he will care for you. And therefore, as a result, let that transform you and care for others in the same way. Let's pray and go before the Lord in communion. Father, we thank you for the grace you've shown us. You made your enemies your children unfathomable grace, unfathomable mercy. Thank you that you're a good God, that you're sovereign over all, and we can trust you with our lives. The things that we think are the pathways to joy and satisfaction, they're dead ends. I pray that we would see that only in you do we have any hope and any righteousness, that we would come to your table and ask for what you provide. We thank you for your abundant grace. Be with us now. I pray that we would remember the gospel of goodness. You've saved us, that you're redeeming all things to yourself. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.